Welcome to another Stockflare podcast, and I'm very privileged today to have a very good old friend of mine, Edgar Senior, uh, with us on this podcast to talk about ETFs. Now, Edgar is somebody I've known for well over 30 years, having gone to high school with him uh, many, many years ago. But since that time, he has gone on to become a very good expert in the world of investing, and in particular, the world of hedge funds and ETFs. So that's why I've asked him to come in and explain to us uh, a little bit about his background, and then we'll dig into what ETFs are and whether they are something that anyone and everybody should use. Edgar, welcome. Good morning, Shane. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Um, and so, as you mentioned, I've been working in uh, the ETF industry most recently, uh, and I was running the product development function for a company called Source, which is Europe's largest independent ETF issuer. So they're an asset manager, but they raise all of their money through exchange-traded funds rather than through you know, normal mutual funds. So other, most people will have heard of Vanguard or iShares, which is owned by BlackRock. But Source is one of the other leading players in this market. Correct. And I think iShares is a good example because they focus also exclusively on ETFs. And yep. that's all that Source does, ETFs. And, you know, we had about $20 billion, which wow. sounds like a lot. But in fact, ETFs are such a scale game and the margins are so very, very slim. The fees for investors are very, very low. So actually, that's not all that much money. Okay. Okay. But it's uh, still uh, a very, very good place uh, to start. 20 billion. It's a good. It's a good place to be. It's the fifth or sixth largest uh, in Europe. But as I said, it's the largest independent one that's not owned by a bigger bank or a bigger bigger asset manager, uh, which which uh, which makes us quite unique. And it allows us to be very flexible in the ETFs we create, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Okay. Okay. So let's let's dig into this. So ETFs are exchange traded funds, and they more or less appeared about 30 years ago, and. Since they appeared, they've grown from nothing to trillions of assets. Um, why is that the case? That's right. Uh, actually, the most recent estimate I just saw this morning uh, was that we'd reached a new high of $3.1 trillion wow. of global assets uh, within ETFs across all regions, uh, which interestingly uh, is just a little bit larger than the hedge fund industry. So it's just, ah. in, just in the last couple of months that ETFs have now surpassed hedge funds and the general consensus, which I would agree with, is that they are going to far outstrip hedge funds. Hedge funds, because of capacity concerns, are unlikely to be able to grow at a very significant rate from where they are today. ETFs, and we'll talk about this in a minute, are mostly linked to uh, very wide passive market indices like the S&P and the FTSE and MSCI world, so they don't have those capacity constraints. And the current prediction is that ETFs should get to about $5 trillion wow. by about the year 2020. If not before. If not before. And, and and some of the regulatory changes that are happening, particularly in Europe, they've already happened in America, but they're happening across Europe, um, which essentially force mutual fund managers to be much more transparent with their fees and who gets paid what and, and, and why. Uh, that is pushing more and more money into passives, uh, generally passive investing, including mutual fund that are trackers. But ETFs are particularly benefiting from yeah. that. So I think $5 trillion next stop. So... In historically, people have put their money into mutual funds, into their pension funds, and that money has gone into active asset management. And we're seeing that that growth is to some extent moving over 
to ETFs. So if you think of that growth, what do you think of the drivers of this growth in this ETF? Why is it now becoming bigger than that other buzzword our listeners will have heard of being hedge funds? So I think you can look at two major drivers of the growth. And the first is just an overall shift from active investing towards passive investing. And that's something that's been happening really for decades. And it started with academics doing lots of work back in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the basic theories that underpin modern financial theory are based on the fact that it is almost impossible to outperform the market. So people call this the efficient market theory. Uh, and you know there's a there's a hard version of that, which is that no one can ever make money, and and, and no one believes that today. True. And then there's what's called a weak form efficient market theory, which simply says that the markets are pretty efficient most of the time. Yeah. But of course they do crazy things. You know you look at crazy bubbles and crazy depressions. So. Yeah. We don't think they always value a stock perfectly, but we think on the whole, they do a good job of valuing a stock. And therefore, it's very hard for active managers to make money reliably, regularly, consistently, especially net of fees. And so that's the second thing that's happened. So the first was the academics arguing markets are incredibly efficient, and they proved that with lots of studies. The second thing is that investors have become very, very sensitive to fees, very aware of fees. And they've realized that if you're paying away 1% or 2% per annum, the compounded effect of that over a 20 or 30 year you know, li- lifetime savings horizon is huge. You could be talking about 20, 30, 40% or more additional money in your pension fund if you can cut the fees from an active fee of, say, a percent yeah. to an ETF-style fee of, say, 10 to 15 basis points. So one, 90% reduction in your fee. Hugely valuable. Absolutely. Well, it's funny you say that because I'm currently reading a book by Spencer Jacob of the Wall Street Journal, and he points out two specific things. One is he says the research shows that you shouldn't pick the best fund manager, you should pick the cheapest fund manager. And the second thing he points out is that Warren Buffett has said that when he passes away, he has recommended that the trustees of his money put everything into ETFs. Absolutely, and specifically, I think into the S and P five hundred. Correct, well, the S and P five hundred, yeah. and that was his, his choice. So, but that was the first thing, which is an overall shift from active to passive, active that, and that's going on. And in fact, yeah. last year, you know, American equity mutual funds, active funds, lost money. So there were net redemptions money from them actually in the home. left money the left fund in that particular year. That's the, that's the first yeah. time I think. But at the same time, ETFs gained money. Yeah. So there were just the, hedge funds. Um, uh, hedge funds were more or less flat-ish flat. last okay. year. Yeah, they, they had some inflows, they had some yeah. redemptions. Yeah. So let's call it flat-ish. Yeah. Uh, but ETFs outstripped. So they're wow. really money pouring into ETFs. But pouring into mutual funds that are based on indices as well. So as I say, um, if you want to buy the S&P 500, you don't have to buy an ETF. And in fact, if you go back 10 years ago, you could buy the S&P 500, but you bought a Vanguard tracker fund or a legal yeah. and general tracker fund. Yeah. That's a normal mutual fund. Yeah. There's, nothing e- there's no ETF about that. But what people decided a couple of years ago is that, well, hang on, how about if we try and get the best of both worlds? If we try and have the diversification yeah. and, this, and this low-cost, transparent index tracking aspect of a, of a mutual tracker fund, but why don't we add on the ease of buying, holding, and selling a stock, Yeah, a single yeah. stock? So yeah. I can just go in my normal brokerage account, I can click buy, and instead of buying a, a stock in Apple, I am buying a stock of an ETF. Buy the S&P 500 as easy as I buy Apple. In one click. And it's not just the ease, but the ease is important, actually. What it is, for me, is the immediacy of execution. Yeah. So, again, if you, at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, you read some news about the, the Brexit 
risk, the risk of the of the UK leaving the EU, uh, was all of a sudden much less. Yeah. As breaking news came out. Yeah. It's 10 a.m. in the morning. If you went and bought a FTSE mutual fund, yeah. it would not settle. You wouldn't get your price fixed until the end of the day. That's, ah, that's, so how, every mutual, that's how every mutual fund in the world works. So once a day. And so if you were correct in your view of that headline that you saw, and the market moved up by 3%, you would actually would be buying those stocks at the end of the day 3% higher. Wow. So you would not have benefited from your kind of quick reaction time to that market headline. And the opposite is true as well, that if you're holding the S&P and at 3 p.m. you see that Donald Trump has just been named president and you, <laughs> and you decide it might be a wise time to slightly reduce your exposure to the U.S. market, uh, if you hold a mutual fund, you can't sell at that moment. No. Or rather, you can, you can put in your sell order, but it does not get filled until the end of the trading day. Okay, so and ease of use and immediacy, immediacy. and low cost yes. are all reasons that this part of the market has grown dramatically Absolutely. over the last 30 years. And, and specifically, the point is that within passives, ETFs are actually stealing market share, even from, from mutual funds, even from tracker mutual funds. Wow. But if you look at the overall mutual fund industry in America, the uh, percentage represented by ETFs has gradually ticked up over the last couple of years to about 15%. Okay. In Europe... It is about four or five percent of the mutual fund industry. So it's tiny in Europe for now. It's one of the reasons that we're even more constructive about the potential for ETFs in Europe to grow. And I should just just to give a couple of numbers: the U.S. ETF industry is two point one trillion dollars. Yeah. Europe is about five hundred billion dollars. Wow. And, the rest. And, and and we think it's very easy to double in Europe in the next couple of years. I mean that that's a low hurdle to achieve. Yeah, so we think true. we we think we have a trillion dollars in ETFs just in Europe in the next couple of years and America goes from 2 to 3 very very quickly as well. Wow. And then we have Asia as well. Correct. Okay. Well, if we, let, let's move on because this all sounds wonderful um, as a as a product for for any investor to look at. But surely there's some concerns out there. Surely there's there's things to to worry about when it comes to to, to looking at ETFs? Uh, I think, yes, absolutely. L like everything, no matter how great the tool is, you need yeah. to think about how you use it. One of the plus, plus bankers are very good at abusing tools when they find them. They sometimes work out ways to use them to benefit the bank rather than the investor. That is true. That is true. And, and just like people, people say of derivatives, derivatives are like guns. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Derivatives yes. don't hurt people. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the person who misuses research. the derivative. Sure. Um, I think, look, ETFs are much simpler. Um, they, are, they are hard to abuse. Yeah, uh, they, are, they, are, they are simple, robust, transparent, cheap tools. I, I, I can't speak more highly about them. I've worked in the past with structured products. I've worked with hedge funds. Uh, I've worked with CDOs. And, and, and I can tell you, for the first time in my life, I work with a product that I can recommend both to my mother and, yeah. to, my, and to my taxi driver. Um, which is, so it's, it's, frankly, it's wonderful working in the ETF industry. I, I think they're wonderful tools that, frankly, everybody should be using. In the widows portfolios. and orphans idea, this, this is, is perfectly suitable. fine. This, this, is, is this is suitable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the fears, one of the concerns, comes from uh, people like Jack Bogle, who is the founder of Vanguard, yeah. and almost the father of passive investing. Yeah. Um, and, and a great man to read his books as well. Right? Absolutely, no, and he's, he's a wonderful advocate for yeah. essentially for simplicity and low fees in yeah. investing. Um, and what Bogle Bogle originally really opposed Vanguard launching ETFs, wow. uh, and the reason is that he said, look, if you want to buy the S and P five hundred or the MSCI World, you should be buying it for a long period of time. Okay. 
he, like those academics I referred to earlier, believes that markets are very, very efficient and that individual human beings, even professionals, cannot outperform those markets on a regular basis. And he says, market timing, you know, you thinking that because you see a headline about Donald Trump that you can outperform the market by going in and out, he said, you're wrong. You will lose money over time. And so he dislikes ETFs because he thinks they encourage churning and over-trading, which on the one hand eats up fees, and that's yeah. true. Yeah. And on the other hand, it means that you could be out of the market when yeah. the market has a big run-up. You could get spooked out. Absolutely. But that surely is available to, to any asset class. Well, that's precisely right. And so, uh, so I find some of these criticisms are a little bit patronizing. Uh, that he essentially kind of says, you know, no one should try to do yeah. better than the market. And as I say, look, th th there is a robust academic theory behind it that they say these markets are efficient, you can't outperform. And yet plenty of people do outperform, perhaps not over that long a period, though. So that's a separate argument that, that, we, that, that, that we, could, we could have that argument for hours. But I do think there's a valid point inside there, even though I don't agree with his overall point which is that you do need to avoid being tempted by ETFs into over-trading. It has become so easy. You can just go, in. I'm in the S&P, I'm out of the S&P, I'm in the S&P, I'm out of the S&P. You couldn't do that with a mutual fund, and nor could you do that if you owned all 500 stocks yourself. Yeah. yeah. Because now you can do a single trade, you can pay one execution, you know, one commission cost, and you're in and you're out, and you're in and you're out. So I think there's a valid point there. Don't be, but don't be tempted by ETFs into kind of over-trading. Yes. So, so it's a great product, but don't let it uh, yeah. sucker you into day trading. Don't let its liquidity become a disadvantage. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think another concern that is just worth thinking about is the topic of liquidity. And people talk a lot about liquidity in ETFs. And, and you hear, on the one hand, you hear some people being very bullish about the fact that ETFs actually create additional liquidity for investors. And so... Uh, we haven't gone in, 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 in any detail into the structure of what an ETF is. As we said, it's a mutual fund that literally just lists its shares on a stock exchange so that you can buy and sell its shares as if they're a stock. But what actually happens behind the scenes is that there's a bank who's an intermediary, between, yeah. essentially between you and this fund. Yeah. And if you go back to that bank and you go, right, I want to sell my S&P 500 at 3 p.m. because of this Donald Trump headline, that bank can choose to do one of two things. Yes. They could take the ETF share from you and they could sell it to another investor who happens to want to buy it at that okay. point in time at, at, at a sensible price. Yeah. So that's just like if he was buying an Apple share from you, he'd go and sell the Apple share to someone Somebody else. else. Yeah. But here he has got, an, uh, that banker has got an additional option. He can say, oh, there's no one else who wants to buy that right now at exactly that price. So I'm simply going to go and unwind a portion of the fund and sell those S&P 500 stocks. So he creates that liquidity from the underlying stocks. And so this is very important to understand. And this is great. The great thing about ETFs, the liquidity of ETFs, in theory, cannot be worse than the liquidity in the underlying market. Yeah. So, you know, if, the, if, if, if you're trading the S&P and it's kind of a, a 10 basis point wide bid offer, yeah. then in theory, that S&P 500 ETF should not be more expensive to trade. But here's the thing. Sometimes it can become cheaper. And in fact, it turns out, if you look at the really big S&P 500 uh, um, ETF in the States, SPY, yeah. which has got some $200 billion in it, yeah, the spider. it trades at a tighter bid offer than the weighted average S&P 500 stocks underneath it. And so, wow. and so they talk about secondary liquidity. This becomes even more important, but also difficult when you look at less uh, vanilla, less liquid underlyings. 
So again, one of the advantages of ETFs that we didn't touch on is the incredible choice of underlying assets you can buy. Yeah. So for example- So this is not just about buying the S&P 500. This is not, it's not even just about buying equities or, or, or buying funky equities like frontier markets. Yeah. You can buy, for example, high yield bonds. Yeah. So you can get a diversified portfolio of high yield bonds. So it's like bonds. buying a share, but the actual thing you're buying is you're investing in the bonds of say companies. Absolutely. So, so, again, you, so in the current market where people are worried about the oil industry, it's, this, it's gone down a lot. They're worried about the the, um, the soundness of some of the, uh, the the fracking companies and the likes. You could buy what is looks like a share, but is actually investing in the bonds and the high yield debt of all of that industry. I mean, and you can choose. I mean, you could just buy conservative government bonds. Yep. You, you could buy you know the Barclays aggregate, which is you yep. know the entire bond industry. Uh, so really, it's like buying any mutual fund out there, but you have this choice. You buy them in a single transaction, immediate execution, total transparency. You know what you're buying. You know what you're paying. Um, but the reason I mention high-yield bonds is that high-yield bonds in the past have had liquidity problems at times. Yes. Uh, bank loans are another market. And so one thing that worries me sometimes is that investors associate the word ETF with perfect liquidity. With perfect liquidity. And when you okay. talk about the S&P 500, frankly, you will get nearly perfect yeah. liquidity. Yeah. But when you start looking at something like high yield bonds, I sometimes worry that the product providers, the, 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 I think they may be overly optimistic. I'm going to say that in a nice way. Yes. Uh, that they are very, very positive that there's no possible situation in which something goes wrong. Well, the problem is that high yield bonds or bank loans have historically had what people call a left tail at liquidity event, as in they had an extreme drop in liquidity in bad times. Did this happen over the, the Great uh, Recession? It of, absolutely of, did. Of 20, uh, 28, 29? Uh, it absolutely did. 08, 09, the liquidity, and you can measure liquidity in different ways, by the way, and there's two simple ways. One of them is just what's the bid offer, and yeah. then the second essentially is um, uh, you know, what size trade can you do without moving the market. Okay. Th those are two easy ways to think yeah. about liquidity yeah. in any asset class. And all of a sudden, you saw that the trade sizes people would do with you just shrank massively. Instead of being able to trade five million, they were trading like fifty thousand at a time wow. in, in these bonds. Um, and uh, and instead of the bid offer being one percent, all of a sudden it was ten percent. In some cases, twenty percent. Wow. Now, I so in effect, these these products that were sold to investors as being highly liquid and low cost, suddenly the the liquidity evaporated. It evaporated. And that's just life. That happens in markets of all types at all times. It happens to property. Yeah. It happens yeah. to the art world. It happens to many, many assets yeah. go through liquidity droughts. What, that, what does that mean? It means there are way more sellers than buyers. Yeah. That's just a life of all markets. And all markets will go through that from time to time. Maybe actually it's good because it meant that you couldn't sell the thing and you weren't spooked out of the market. I don't think investors would have been very comforted by your observation, but you are correct. Uh, but the reason I bring it up here is that because ETFs are almost synonymous with the word liquidity, yes. I just worry that when people buy less liquid underlying, such as high yield bonds or bank loans or convertible bonds, or perhaps small cap emerging market equities. Or real estate. Uh, you, well, interesting, you can't buy real estate through an ETF. Okay. You can buy REITs. REITs, and they are relatively liquid. And they're actually quite liquid, yeah. they're large. Yeah. But the point is that people need to understand that magic is not created. 
and that yeah. ultimately, if liquidity drops away in the underlying market, liquidity will drop away. The exact the same market. thing will happen in the ETF. Okay. And I just want investors to be aware that that is a risk. It's not a worse risk than buying the underlying. It's, it's the same risk. It's the same risk. There's just not magic there. There's no alchemy there. Okay. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to then two final comments, uh, which I wanted to get your your insight onto. The first one is that uh, you mentioned earlier how um, index investing was very much about passive passive investing and this is where people and academics have said that don't bother trying to do active um, so is there is there only passive investing with ETFs or have you seen is there some way that this is segueing into a style of active management as well yeah so you're right so uh, historically ETFs are synonymous with index based investing yeah. and, and index and passive mean more or less the same thing yeah. Um, and what's happened in the last couple of years is that active managers have looked at the growth of the ETF market and they said, wow, this thing has, has gone to $3 trillion. Yeah. Can we use this to distribute our actively managed strategies as well? Okay. In other words, I've got a portfolio. It's a long only portfolio of equities. But instead of just buying the S&P 500, I'm actually kind of buying and selling things that I think are more or less valuable compared to the S&P 500. Why can't I put that into an ETF? Now, the answer is that physically, you actually can. You can, okay. But in practice, it turns out to be phenomenally difficult. Now, interestingly, it's easier to do that for a fixed income portfolio, okay. so with bonds underlying it, than it is for equities. And so it turns out that you do have quite a few, but still a tiny percentage of the market, of ETFs that are based on actively managed bond strategies. And in fact, the company I worked at, Source, has a, a, a partnership with PIMCO. Okay. And they have a series of about eight ETFs issued into Europe. Separately, PIMCO does the same thing by themselves into the US, uh, which are actively managed fixed income strategies, where PIMCO is attempting to outperform that underlying index. So it's still long only. And I should say as well that it is, uh, it's, it's, it's supposed to have very low tracking error. Okay. It's supposed to kind of look very like the index, but outperform it by typically between 50 and 150 basis points to at least pay for all of your fees which and hopefully nice. a bit more, which is nice. So that is starting to, to be delivered in ETF format, but there are many challenges and complexities there. One of them is that in an ETF, as I mentioned, there is a market maker who's trading these stocks. They're making a two-way screen price for you like they would for a share of Apple. Yeah. Now, for them to be able to do that with an actively managed portfolio, they need to know what is in that portfolio at all times. Because wow. if they're going to buy that from you in two, in two seconds flat, they need to know what stocks are in there now, not what was in there last week. So do they have to be much more concentrated, these ETFs? Uh, no, they don't have to be more concentrated, but you need, uh, you need to use technology to ensure that whenever that manager does a trade, that market maker and also the, the bank intermediary, what we call the authorized participant, everyone's got to know pretty much what's going on inside that portfolio at all times throughout the day. So that's tricky to do, but it's not impossible. It's just tricky. Yeah. Uh, and, then the, um, and then the second thing is that a lot of active managers don't want the world to know what they're buying when they <laughs> buy it. They're, you know... People feel proprietary about their ideas. You know, if someone wakes up one morning and has a genius idea about a great stock, he doesn't want everyone else to know it that day. Now, in the States, you're gonna have, if you're big enough, you're going to have to do your 13F quarterly filings. So eventually, a lot People of... People find out eventually, but that's months after you bought the stock. That's right. So it's once a quarter, it's lagged, and maybe it's not your entire portfolio. So you know, people are okay with that. Managers are okay with that. With an ETF, typically... Investors expect real-time transparency for almost all the portfolio. Now, for the S&P 500, that's obvious. Yeah. You're not hiding anything. So 
the manager therefore has to become comfortable at letting the market know and the market makers know, you know, when he buys a new stock. And, and, and most active managers hate that idea. So in America, what they're doing is they're trying to put together these very, to me, very complex structures so that uh, investors can see certain amounts of the portfolio and they can see the net asset value, but they can't see all of the components. And they're basically trying to bridge the gap between those two competing objectives for transparency and secrecy. And personally, I think that once you add complexity into the ETF, you lose what oh, has yes. made ETFs yeah. so popular and successful. Plus, plus you move to a world of, trust me. I, 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 and just complex structures with third parties verifying that things aren't too different from what they were supposed to be. And, and I just, to me, although some of these solutions are technically brilliant, for me, you lose a lot of what attracts investors to ETFs. Okay. So I have to say, uh, it's certainly possible that active ETFs become a larger part of the market, but I would not bet on it. I think for me, it's about passives. And also, of course, the topic that we will talk about in the next podcast, it is also about this world of smart beta. Okay. And, and, and we, we won't touch it on detail here, but you know, smart beta is an index-based investment, so there's no yeah. human intervention, but it tends to take the techniques used by active managers. For example, identifying undervalued companies identifying high quality companies, identifying low volatility companies, you can do that now in an index. And so that starts to look a lot more like an active strategy. So for me... So where ETFs move away from passive, it's what's now called, a new buzzword for us in this podcast, smart beta. It's where you take the, you, t you take active strategies and you put them into a structure that could look like an ETF. I would say you take you take techniques from techniques. active managers, yeah, uh, and, and you essentially and you put that into an index. And the simplest example is: I take the S and P five hundred, yeah, I add a filter to yeah. uh, to only include the high dividend paying stocks. Okay, okay, so boom, that is smart beta. Yeah, you now have yeah. the high dividend S and P five hundred. That's a product. It exists. It's got billions of dollars in it. Wow, that's smart beta. Doesn't that start to look a lot like an active strategy that tries to extract income from the from U.S. large caps? Yes, it does. So, it does. so that is smart beta. Therefore, it's an indexed-based version. You could call it a passive version of an active strategy. And and so for me, the the growth of ETFs in the quasi-active world is through these smart beta products rather than through you know f actively traded full human discretion active strategies. And I think there will continue to be small amounts of these active ETFs done, but I would be very surprised to see it become a very large part of the market. Okay. Now, an alternative to active ETFs is something that the world of financial technology and fintech have spoken about a lot recently, is a thing called robo-advisors. So um, many people will, will have heard of companies like Betterment or Wealthfront, who are offering a alternative um, to being uh, a mutual fund, and it's called Robo Advisors. So, so our, some of our listeners will have heard of this. Um, can you give us your insight as to what exactly is a Robo Advisor and what do you think about them? So, Robo Advisors is a fascinating area that's come out of nowhere in the last, I'd say, five or six years, with the with the the U.S. being ahead of Europe uh, as usual in these matters. Um, so robo-advisors, uh, and it's a term that a lot of people dislike actually, and some people refer to it as digital wealth management, okay. which I think is a little bit more self-explanatory. So what you're talking about here is it's the delivery of wealth management services. That's the first bit. It is mostly online delivery instead okay. of face-to-face -face via an advisor. 
So that, I think that's an important part of it. So your uh, private banker is actually a computer? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is targeting people who probably don't have enough money to actually justify a private banker. Okay. So this is targeting people who've got 50 grand or 100 grand perhaps they want to invest. And at the moment, they're a very under-serviced part of the financial world. And so that, that's definitely kind of the core target community for these. It's, so, sort, of, it's sort of hilarious uh, or sad that when you have $50,000 that the private banking world doesn't care about you. That that's too little money. Even, for them to even care. For a private bank, 500000 is probably too small. Oh, Men, uh, true private banks tend to start at between 5 and $10 million, and that's investable wealth. That's not wow. including your house. So, so most people are just ignored by the wealth management industry. Well, once you go below private banks, you have broader wealth managers. Yeah. So if you had a couple of hundred grand, they would love your business. Yeah. But the, the people of the, with the 50 to 100 are the ones who are actually really totally overlooked and underserviced. Uh, and so that guy up until now has probably either tried to build a multi-asset portfolio himself, himself yeah. uh, or he's just gone and bought uh, an existing multi-asset mutual fund, yeah. which by the way is a massive business in both the US and in Europe. It is, I think it's the single largest sector of European mutual funds, the use of this industry. It's about 1.7 trillion euros out of about eight or nine trillion industry wow. and growing faster than the industry. So multi-asset funds are huge. What, and so what robo-advisors do is they try and say, look, we've got something that's better for you than buying an off-the-shelf uh, multi-asset fund, and you, my friend with 50 grand, have no other alternatives at the moment. And so the, the robo-advisor has said, so it's, it's primarily online uh, instead of using an advisor, but some of them also have backup advisors. Okay, so some of them actually have a person you can get to. You can get to, but it's the backup as opposed to the primary. Okay. Uh, and so that, that allows them to service smaller clients who, um, unfortunately, they just can't make enough money out of to have a dedicated advisor. That's yeah. the sad truth of it. Uh, so it's primarily online, but not, it doesn't have to be always online. Uh, the portfolio is, is primarily made up of ETFs, and that's yeah. important too. So, so it's so the building block. The ETFs are the building blocks to build a multi-asset portfolio for you, and that's important because they're trying to keep the costs down. And as we said, we didn't go into the pricing of ETFs, but iShares has got a range of what they call core, uh, capital C core ETFs, uh, and I think there's probably about 15 or 20 products in here, and they average between 10 and 15 basis points total costs. Wow. And that's a real total. Uh, it's incredibly cheap. And when I say total costs, a difference between ETFs and mutual funds is that the TER of an ETF includes all the extras, like admin and custody and paying fees, and all of those things that are an extra inside a mutual fund and can easily add on 5 to 15 basis points. Wow. So, so ETFs are really phenomenally cheap. Products. So you're not comparing like with like when you compare a mutual fund fee with an ETF fee? Typically not, no. You need to look at the total cost of ownership, yeah. the TCO, uh, and that should pick it up. But most people tend not to look at that. They just focus on the headline fees, um, and that flatters mutual funds. Um, but so robo-advisors use this because the point of a robo-advisor is I need to offer you a product that's incredibly cheap, and that's the next attribute of, of robo-advisors. If I'm charging you 1.5% per annum, I, I, I don't think I qualify as a robo-advisor because the whole point is... Because I'm online, I can offer you a very, very cheap multi-asset portfolio built out of ETFs. So I'm not picking stocks, because if I had a team of 100 guys picking stocks, I'm not going to be able to charge you 25 basis points. And so that's the kind of money that is typically being charged to investors for the robo-advisory service. It's 25 to 50 bips a year. Uh, and that is astonishingly cheaper than the equivalent. An average private bank seeks to make at least 1% out of you. And frankly, if they're putting you to mutual funds, that's an additional 1%. So you're, pro you're probably paying 2% a year for that multi-asset portfolio from a private bank. Okay, so 
let's go back to our widows and orphans or you're getting into the cab or you're talking to a family member um, do you say they say where do you put your money they, you tell them you work in this industry do you say to them you should look at a robo advisor or do you say a robo advisor is just one option um, a robo advisor is it's certainly one option I mean if you have more money if you can get you know personal financial advice from a financial advisor uh, then that's probably a better thing to do. And we didn't mention another aspect of robo-advisors is they tend to have very detailed risk questionnaires because a big part of a robo-advisor, and in fact the word advisor is used here, because they try to assess what is an appropriate level of risk for you. And it's not just, hey, are you a high-risk guy or a low-risk guy? There, there, there's a battery of questions out of which they really attempt to understand you, your psychology, your objectives, your investment horizons. I mean, they really, what they try to do is put into an algorithm what a, a, a personal advisor facing you would actually be doing. So they're really trying to replace that, that thing and then personalize it for you. So once they understand you and they understand your risk tolerance, they understand your investment objectives, they can then build a much more personalized portfolio. Sometimes it's say one out of nine, they have nine risk buckets. Sometimes it's even more personalized. Uh, it's quite astonishing what some of the newer robo-advisors are doing. So to answer your question, Shane, I would absolutely say to people that they should consider robo-advisors. I think, first of all, you, you start with the risk questionnaire, so you end up with an appropriate portfolio. The second thing is it's incredibly low cost, 25 to 50 basis points, um, and the underlying the ETFs are maybe 10 basis points. So again, your entire costs are probably sub half a percent per annum, which is incredibly good value. You're getting a very diversified portfolio. One of the biggest mistakes we all make is not diversifying enough. True. Uh, and this is something they take care of for you. And they, you know, they will go into broad asset classes. You'll have emerging market stocks. You'll have U.S. You know, uh, investment grade bonds and high yield bonds, maybe some emerging market bonds. I mean, the diversification like you could never achieve yourself. And, and we just. A lot of us, if we do this analysis and research ourselves, we just don't have the time or the patience to do that diversification and ensure that it remains diversified over time. Well, and that, that last point you made is, is, is one of the most important things for me for RoboAdvisor. What they do as well is they regularly rebalance back to the model portfolio for you. Yeah. And that's again one of the biggest mistakes that many of us make in our personal investing is we allow those weights to drift over time. So if equities have a great year and bonds are flat, all of a sudden our portfolio has actually become out of kilter with what we said was appropriate for our risk yeah. And all of a sudden, so we, we should sell what's expensive and buy what's cheap. And robo advisors do that. And the likelihood is they will create significant value for you throughout your career, throughout your life. Not simply because they're bringing you back to an appropriate risk level, but as you said, because they are selling whatever asset class happens to go up a lot will be sold yeah. to rebalance back to that sensible basic model portfolio. So I just think these are invaluable services. I think anyone, frankly, even if you're a, a, a very wealthy person, I think these are invaluable services for you. To be able to get that for between 25 and 50 basis points, uh, and again, with the transparency and the convenience of delivery online, I think these are phenomenal products. And I would, I would encourage anyone to consider uh, using robo-advisors for, and not just for a small amount of your wealth, but frankly, you should use it for a large amount of yeah. what you have. Yeah. So to, to, to wrap this all up, the, the world of ETFs is clearly a space which has grown dramatically in the last 30 years and will continue to grow dramatically. Um, it looks like it is um, eating the lunch of the mutual fund industry and probably has a lot more potential for investors to look at um, in terms of growth than the hedge fund industry. So driven by, as you say, uh, great liquidity, great products, easy to understand, low cost. And 
It is built upon this really, really robust academic and in practical uh, view that you, it's very difficult to outperform the market, so just follow the market. And within this market, there's two key things that are juicing this for people. One is what you refer to as smart beta, and then the other is this world of robo-advisors. So this, this new innovation, and it's not new since it's been around for 30 years, but this innovation, which is clearly a benefit for investors, um, and something that is something that all of our listeners and any of their friends should clearly have a look at. Well said. Okay. Well, it's sort of strange that me uh, working at Stockware, which is a, uh, a business, a financial data business that gives people uh, uh, research on uh, stocks, actually loves ETFs. I do love ETFs. Um, so I, I know that people find it strange that I am a great uh, believer in ETFs. And I personally own um, two uh, ETFs, which have a large part of my portfolio in them. But for me, it's a very simple thing. It's ETFs are a great thing for the vast majority of your money, but stocks are fun and you can find great things yourself. So I also think that there's a place for both. I would agree. Okay, well, Edgar, thank you very, very much for coming in. And we hope to have you back in the future on the podcast because uh, I'm really intrigued by your, com your comments about the world of Smart Beta. So hopefully you'll come back to talk to us about that. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Shane. Thank you. Great. Many thanks.